Hello and welcome to the Estate Planners Podcast. My name is Anthony Brinkman and this is the place for will writers, estate planners and solicitors that are interested in finding out the tips, tools and technicalities to best help their clients. This is episode 21 entitled Advanced Directives. In 2010, I met a client, a single lady in her early 60s, to do her will and lasting powers of attorney. When we got to the life-sustaining treatment section of the health and welfare LPA, she started to well up. Her eyes went red and the tears started to flow. She was sobbing so much that she couldn't speak for a minute or two, but when she composed herself, she said that she had already made an advanced directive. She went on to tell me that she'd been in the situation of having needed to make a decision about her own mother. Her two sisters at that time couldn't deal with the responsibility of having to decide whether or not to continue mum's treatment and left it to my client to make that decision. And all this had happened eight years prior to this day that I was with her and yet all that emotion was right there and came gushing out when we touched on this topic. She told me what had happened. And she described the decision in a really brutal form. She said that basically the question that was being asked of her was, should I kill mum or not? She said that barely a day goes by when she doesn't think about it and wonder if she made the right choice. She said that it was pretty much a a no-win situation. If she decided to end the treatment, then that ends mum's life. If she leaves the treatment in place... Her mum could have ended up with living a pretty intolerable existence. And is that really just a selfish choice? The very slim chance that mum would have had to recover to any kind of quality of life would possibly not have been what mum would have wanted anyway. She'd carried the weight of that responsibility with her ever since. And yet, all that anxiety and that guilt and that painful emotion that she carries could have been prevented if her mother had made an advanced directive. Now before we get into what an advanced directive is or what it should contain, I want to just give you a little experiment to do. So on page 6 of the lasting power of attorney for health and welfare, the subject of life-sustaining treatment is taken up. The question is asked, who do you want to make decisions about life-sustaining treatment? The donor then has two options. Option A, I give my attorneys authority, or option B, I do not give my attorneys authority. For the purpose of this experiment, which I'm going to suggest that you conduct, let's just paraphrase that question ever so slightly too. Would you want your attorneys to be responsible for making any decision about life-sustaining treatment? The concept remains pretty much the same there, doesn't it? Would you want your attorneys to be responsible for making any decision about life-sustaining treatment? So, here's the experiment. For the next 10 clients that you see, when you get to that section of the LPA instructions about life-sustaining treatment, try this. Without any explanation or introduction, ask your client that question. Would you want your attorneys to be responsible for any decision about life-sustaining treatment? What will almost certainly happen is that a portion of those clients will respond with an answer like, Oh, turn the machine off. Now, that tells us something, doesn't it? 
Firstly, that response is not really an answer to the question, is it? Would you want your attorneys to be responsible for making a decision about life-sustaining treatment? Turn the machine off. It's like the donor is answering what would be the next logical question, which would be, and what would you want that decision to be? But it also tells us that the client has already got an opinion about this. They almost certainly haven't thought it through very much, as simply saying, turn the machine off, doesn't really give much scope for understanding what circumstances have to be present to conclude that the donor would prefer not to be kept alive artificially. More on that shortly. But the general gist of what the client wants is there, isn't it? You might also have had clients that have said that they want to put do not resuscitate in their LPA. I've seen this in one or two clients' LPAs when they've either attempted to make one themselves or have perhaps been to another company that's not fully understood this concept. Simply saying those three words, do not resuscitate, again gives the general gist of what the donor wants, but it's really a pretty thin statement. Do not resuscitate from what exactly? Oh, mum's fainted, go and get the shotgun. Dad's fallen in the canal, we've got him out and he needs CPR, but hold on, do not resuscitate. I'm being deliberately obtuse, of course, but you get the point. Do not resuscitate from what? Or a better question would be, under what circumstances would the donor prefer not to receive life-sustaining treatment? Well, that is, of course, the point about a well-written, well-worded advanced directive. One other point I should address here is that some people will call this document a living will, some will refer to it as an advanced decision, or possibly a DNR, do not resuscitate direction. I prefer to call it an advanced directive, probably because I've been doing this so long that that was the more common name that was used in the past, and certainly in the Mental Capacity Act of 2005, they refer to this as an advanced decision, but in essence, they are all the same thing. Living will, advanced decision, advanced directive, do not resuscitate. On the subject of the Mental Capacity Act, let's just dispel one myth that I've come across, not just from members of the public, but also from solicitors and estate planners too. And that is that the advanced directives are not legally binding. The Mental Capacity Act is the applicable reference point here, and specifically sections 24, 25 and 26. Section 24 states, Advanced decision means a decision made by a person after he has reached 18 and when he has capacity to do so, that if, a, at a later time and in such circumstances as he may specify, a specified treatment is proposed to be carried out or continued by a person providing health care for him, and b, at that time he lacks capacity to consent to the carrying out or continuation of the treatment, the specified treatment is not to be carried out or continued. And further, section 26 of the Act goes on to say, if the person has made an advanced decision which is A, valid, and B, applicable to a treatment, the decision has effect as if he had made it and had had capacity to make it at the time when the question arises whether the treatment should be carried out or continued. So we've got very clear direction there that an advanced decision or an advanced directive is legally valid and it stands up in those circumstances. There is another myth as well that I think we should dispel, which is that LPAs invalidate advanced decisions. 
Now we have to be a little careful here, as there is some partial truth in this. So let's take a look at it. And again, we're looking at section 24, 25, 26, and specifically section 25 as it relates to the sequence of actions that need to be taken. So section 25, subsection 2b of the 2005 Mental Capacity Act states, an advanced decision is not valid if the person has, under a lasting power of attorney, created after the advanced decision was made, conferred authority on the donee, or if more than one, any of them, to give or refuse consent to the treatment to which the advanced decision relates. A little further down, in subsection 7 of section 25, it says, The existence of any lasting power of attorney, other than one of a description mentioned in subsection 2b, the one that we just looked at, does not prevent the advanced decision from being regarded as valid and applicable. So, let's just be clear about this. If the advance directive is created on the 1st of January, then one month later, on the 1st of February, the donor creates an LPA for health and welfare, appointing attorneys and conferring authority to the attorneys to make life-sustaining treatment decisions, then the advance decision is no longer valid. However, if the advance decision is made at the same time or after, then it would stand. So, the correct approach would be to create the LPA for Health and Welfare and, in the Preferences section, to direct the attorney's attention towards the existence of the Advanced Directive that they are creating at the same time as the LPA. Something along the lines of, I would like my attorneys to make reference to the Advanced Directive that I am creating at the same time as this LPA in relation to any life-sustaining treatment decisions that may need to be made. So you can see there that we are referencing the advanced decision in the LPA itself and that acknowledgement of its existence keeps it relevant and keeps it helpful for the attorneys to refer to if that decision ever has to be made. All right, so now that we've eliminated those two fallacies, let's take a look at one of the more common forms of advanced directive and what that can contain. So this form of an advanced directive starts out with the statement saying to my family and physician. So on this point it is a sensible idea to make two or maybe three advanced directives. Unlike a will one advanced directive does not revoke an earlier advanced directive unless it specifically states that it does. It is of course possible for a person to change their mind about the contents of their directive and can change the provisions therein but they're also able to make several copies of the same document, have them all signed and witnessed, and provide one to, for example, each of their children, and it is also sensible to lodge the same with their GP for their medical records. Moving on, this advance directive is made by me, then give the person's name, address, possibly date of birth to correctly identify the person. So, this advance directive is made by me, name and address, when I am of sound mind and after careful consideration. All right, clause one. The contents of this advanced directive supersede any oral or written directions which I may have previously given in this regard. Clause two. If in the opinion of a registered medical practitioner, I can no longer take part in decisions for my own future and I am suffering from a condition which has rendered me incapable of rational existence, in brackets, an intolerable condition. 
then I wish the following instructions to take effect. Okay, so on this second clause here, some people do prefer to have two registered medical practitioners rather than just one. A second opinion can help to eliminate errors. However, it can also cause uncertainties if they are at odds in their opinions. This is essentially a choice for the client to make. Clause three. I do not wish to receive any medical treatment which is designed just to keep me alive. Clause 4. I consent to being fed orally and to any treatment that may relieve my pain and suffering even if the moment of death is thereby hastened. Alright, so you can see with these couple of clauses the general intention here. Comfort, pain-free existence, even if that treatment may shorten life as opposed to a longer lifespan, but potentially being simply the prolonging of pain. Now this fifth clause, this fifth section is quite long and it consists of two distinct parts. So I'm gonna give you the full version first and then we'll double back and break it down a little bit. Clause five, an intolerable condition as referred to above is a condition a, in which I will in all probability spend the rest of my life. 1. Mentally incapable, so as to be unable to take part in decisions for my own future. Or 2. In continuous pain and suffering, or in a coma. Or 3. With my face and head severely disfigured. Or 4. Permanently confined to bed. And B whereby I will suffer from any two or more of the following disabilities for the rest of my life. 1. Unable to communicate sensibly. 2. Unable to recognise my family and friends. 3. Unable to feed, dress and wash myself. 4. Unable to control my bladder and bowel. Okay, so you may have noticed that in the first section, 5a, it contained the word or at the end of each probability. One, mentally incapable so as to be unable to take part in decisions for my own future, or two, in continuous pain and suffering or in a coma, or etc. So that indicates that any one of those quite severe situations had to be present in the first instance, plus, as this version is written, two or more of the conditions from part B. Now the client may want to qualify this further. They may want, for example, three of those additional conditions to be present instead of two, or they might want two of the conditions in section A to be present rather than just one. You get the idea here. This is a document that the client can change to their requirements, whatever they feel comfortable with. The point is that the client has the ability to consider now, whilst they have the opportunity to make a decision, what exactly they would consider to be an intolerable condition in their estimation and by reason of their own opinion. How much less of a minefield would the attorneys or the family have to navigate if they had a map of this nature to guide them in that most horrific of decisions that they might need to make? I should also mention that advanced directives can be expanded to cover other elements of life-sustaining treatment too. For example, the decision might be entirely different for a lady that is pregnant and has to consider that there are potentially two lives at stake. Or it can be qualified by stipulating types of treatment that they consider to be acceptable or not acceptable. The version that I've given here is 
in my opinion, a good quality advance directive that leaves enough scope for a medical practitioner to advise the family or the attorneys and makes the boundaries of that decision much clearer than they would otherwise be. Of course, the complete opposite of the example that I've just given might be more suited to what the client wants. They might want every effort to be made to prolong their life, no matter what suffering might ensue, to give themselves the best chance of survival for as long as humanly possible. We might well pick up on some of the other versions of advanced directives in a future episode. And I want to point out here that I have come across estate planners who quite consciously decide not to sell advanced directives, not to present these to clients because, well, in one circumstance of a, a friend of mine that I know, he came very close to death. He, he had an accident and he was in a coma for some considerable time, but he's recovered to a very good quality of life. He's totally back to normal, basically. And his fear is that if he had had an advanced directive in place, the life-sustaining treatment that he was receiving might have actually been ended. But an advanced directive can be made that says everything should be done to keep that person alive, which is essentially what was done for that gentleman. And at the end of the day, it is a choice for the client to make. They at least need to be presented with the option of putting an advanced directive in place. Before we end this episode, though, I also want to highlight that there are other uses of advanced directives in addition to the matter of life-sustaining treatment. Perhaps the most common other use is in the matter of blood transfusions. Part of the beliefs of Jehovah's Witnesses prohibit the use of blood transfusions in medical treatments. Members of that religion often carry a small advance directive to that effect in their wallets or their purses in case of an accident so that emergency medical personnel know their wishes. Prohibition from the use of psychiatric treatments are also becoming increasingly popular. An example of that addition would read something like this. If I am considered to be suffering from any mental disorder or illness, I wish to have a medical examination to determine whether I have any physical medical condition, toxic poisoning, allergies or nutritional deficiencies, which can and should be treated accordingly. Otherwise, I wish to be treated in a friendly, caring fashion and given plenty of rest and food. Specifically, I direct that I be given no psychiatric treatment of a physically invasive nature, including psychiatric drugs, electroconvulsive therapy, psychosurgery or other similar treatments, for any mental disorder or illness or purported mental disorder or illness. I have no objection to the use of medical drugs for the treatment of diagnosed physical illness or disability, or to the use of sedatives on an emergency basis where my health or safety or the health or safety of others is at immediate risk. So you can see how these types of decisions made now ahead of any condition under which one would not be able to make a decision give the guidance needed to those left with a thankless and often heartbreaking decision to make. So just one final point on this topic, which... If you have come this far through the episode, I might not really need to make, but it is this. Do not undersell or undervalue advanced directives. I do not see these talked about in our profession nearly as often as they should be. They are not complex and they don't need to be expensive. They're one of the absolutely vital reasons why the general public should be using a professional to make their LPAs rather than trying to do it themselves. 
every single LPA for health and welfare that's ever been made and registered has had within it the indication of who the donor would want to be responsible for life-sustaining treatment. But I've rarely seen that any contain any indication of what that decision should be other than what I've mentioned earlier where the rather incomplete and inadequate statement do not resuscitate has been used. We as a profession can do an awful lot of good with advanced directives and we can remove a great deal of emotional turmoil that families will otherwise have to face in the future unless we present this option to our clients. So do that. Give people that option to put advanced directives in place alongside their LPAs. All right, I'll come down off my soapbox now and say that again, I hope you have found this episode useful. Likes and subscribes are immensely helpful in getting this podcast listened to. And let's face it, that has to be a good thing for everybody. The better our profession is at helping our clients, the more confidence the general public will have in turning to us to put these vital documents in place, rather than struggling through it themselves and sometimes making things worse than they would have been if they had not done anything. So yes, please like and subscribe. Until next time, I wish you all the best and thank you for listening.